Hey everyone, I'm uh, pretty deep into the research phase of preparing my next series of episodes. But seeing as we just passed the three-month mark of the war in Gaza, I thought I'd uh, take an opportunity here to do something that I don't usually do on this podcast, and that is speak about current affairs. And so I'm taking this as an opportunity to kind of give a synopsis of some of my thoughts about some of the most important recent developments in this war. I hope you find this somewhat helpful. On January 2nd, 2024, the State of Israel assassinated Saleh al-Aruri, who is the uh, deputy leader of Hamas and one of the founders of the Azadin al-Qassam brigades, uh, that is the armed wing of Hamas. Uh, Saleh al-Aruri was killed along with about half a dozen other uh, Hamas operatives. The assassination, which took place in the Dahya neighborhood, of, uh, that is of southern Beirut, was arguably the most high-profile Israeli assassination of a Palestinian or Lebanese figure outside of occupied Palestine since the killing of Mahmoud al-Mabhouh in the United Arab Emirates in 2010. Now, Western media outlets raced to reveal what they saw as the strategic significance and the tactical brilliance of this Israeli operation. Both the New York Times and The Guardian led with almost an identical narrative. Saleh al-Aruri was a was the Hamas link to Hezbollah and Iran. And so it follows, therefore, so go the articles, that killing al-Aruri deals an irreparable blow not only to Hamas, but to the very existence of what has become known as the axis of resistance. And in times like this, it is clearer than ever that despite producing an endless supply of so-called Middle East experts, neither the West nor their proxy state in the form of the state of Israel really understand Palestinian resistance very well at all. Uh, the reality is that the assassination is much more about Israel itself than it is about Hamas or Hezbollah. If the goal is to deliver a crippling blow to the scientific or operational or tactical or diplomatic capabilities of Hamas or Hezbollah or any other faction, then Israel's long streak of assassinations have been an abysmal failure. An exhaustive account of Israel's political assassinations is far beyond the scope of what I hope to accomplish in this short synopsis. And, you know, in the spirit of brevity, I will offer a synopsis uh, of some of the most high-profile assassinations that have taken place at least within my lifetime. Um, so here goes. Uh, in 1992, a decade into Israel's occupation of southern Lebanon, an Israeli Apache helicopter fired several missiles, killing the then 40-year-old leader of Hezbollah, Abbas al-Musawi. Now, in keeping with the martial tradition of the IDF, 
the airstrike also killed Musawi's wife and children. Uh, Musawi was a charming, clever, charismatic leader, and his assassination was predictably hailed as a decisive blow against the up-and-coming militant organization of Hezbollah. A few years later, in January of 1996, after a months-long manhunt, the State of Israel succeeded in tracking down and assassinating Yahya Ayash, one of the most senior figures in Hamas's armed wing, the Azadin al-Qassam brigades. Unlike Hezbollah's Musawi, Ayash was an enigmatic figure. He was a master of disguise who made few, if any, public appearances on behalf of Hamas, an organization which was less than a decade old at that time. And it was his operational prowess and technical expertise that Israel hoped to snuff out with his assassination. Now, like Musawi, the killing of Ayash was meant to deal a debilitating blow to the fighting capabilities of Hamas within its first decade of existence. During the Second Intifada, and with the moral cover of America's war on terror, Israel ratcheted up its campaign of assassinations. In July of 2002, an Israeli airstrike killed Sheikh Salah al the then commander of the Qassam Brigades. And in March and April of 2004, Israel assassinated two of Hamas's founding leaders, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin and Abdelaziz Rantisi. With each airstrike, with each assassination, Israel claimed that it was dealing fatal blows to those who wished to resist what they saw as the divine right of Zionism. But these assassinations, and the dozens that I haven't mentioned, all failed to achieve either the temporary debilitation that Israel claimed in the immediate aftermaths of those assassinations, or a long-term interruption in the growth of either Hezbollah or Hamas. Shortly after his death, Abbas al-Musawi was replaced as Secretary General of Hezbollah by an even more charismatic leader in the form of Hassan Nasrallah. Yahya Ayash and Salah al were succeeded by an even more elusive Muhammad al-Dif. Decades on, and both Hamas and Hezbollah have developed homegrown combat capabilities that far exceed anything that their long-dead cadres could have imagined before they found themselves in Israel's crosshairs. If the goal is to destroy or stop or even slow down armed resistance, the assassinations simply have not worked. But Israel knows this. So why kill al-Aruri in Lebanon, in a sovereign state, if it changes nothing in this current war? And the real reason, like I said from the onset, has much less to do with Hamas than it has to do with Israel. See, Israel began its war effort with the stated objective of freeing its prisoners, toppling Hamas, and leaving the Qassam brigades militarily incapacitated. But months into Israel's air and ground campaign, 
one of the world's strongest militaries has failed to achieve a single objective in an area that is only 365 square kilometers. Nearly every attempt at freeing prisoners has resulted in the death of both the advancing soldiers and the prisoners they hope to save. Hamas remains firmly in command of its fighting units and are amplifying their hard-won battlefield successes with slick combat footage. Every week, a New Jerusalem Post article claims to have cleansed the north of Gaza, only to be proven wrong by footage of incinerated Markova tanks all over Gaza City later that evening on Telegram. The Israel that decimated three Arab armies in 1967 is an Israel that expects spectacular victories, humiliated enemies, and territorial gains. Instead, Israeli journalists pose with what may be Yahya Sinwar's shoe in the hope of keeping their population plugged into this battle. The killing of Saleh al-Aruri will do little to harm the lines of communication between the various actors in the axis of resistance. The reality is that this assassination is about giving Israelis the illusion that advances are being made. It is about giving Israelis the sense that they are winning, or maybe even more accurately than that, that a win is even possible. And both the Israeli press and their complicit partners in the Western media are happy to play this tune. But despite the overwhelming bias that the media has shown in supporting Israel's genocide upon the people of Gaza, something remarkable has happened. In December of 2023, a Harvard University study revealed that over 50% of Americans aged 18 to 24 have a more favorable view of Palestinian resistance than they do of Israel. Despite both the mainstream media and Hollywood being firmly committed to producing steady streams of Islamophobic and anti-Palestinian filth, and the collusion of Meta in suppressing pro-Palestinian content, the Palestinians seem to be winning over the next generation. Zionists and their allies have been scratching their heads, wondering how this came to pass. And they have blamed anyone and everyone for this transformation, from wokeism to Andrew Tate to TikTok itself. And while this shift is in fact multifaceted and decades in the making, there are three reasons why this war has pulled young people in a pro-Palestinian direction with unprecedented speed. The first can be summarized in two words, Western hypocrisy. In November of 2023, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell was being interviewed on Al Jazeera Arabic and was asked back-to-back questions. The first was whether he thought Israel was guilty of war crimes. And to that question, he replied, quote, I am not a lawyer. But when asked the same question 
as to whether or not Hamas had committed war crimes, his answer was an unequivocal, quote, yes. Examples of this kind of blatant hypocrisy was not always easy to find in the past, but this war has put it on full display and the examples are endless. And for young people, this hypocrisy borders on the dystopian. For years, pundits and politicians alike have criticized attacks on free speech, mocking this up-and-coming generation for being fragile and unmasculine, in sharp contrast with their ubermensch fathers and grandfathers. But those very same tough guys are now carrying out transnational witch hunts across the globe targeting Palestinian student groups and activists at schools and university campuses. Even presidents of Ivy League universities have not been spared. The hypocrisy is just too clear to miss, and young people can easily compare the boundless emotional depths that Western leaders have expressed for war-torn Ukraine with the callous indifference with which they approach the suffering in Gaza. Take this tweet by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from December of 2023, where he writes, quote, In the wake of this latest brutal onslaught by Russia, the bravery and resilience of the Ukrainian people prevails. Volodymyr, your fight is our fight. Canada will continue to stand with Ukraine, whatever it takes, for as long as it takes. Now compare it with this tweet where he wrote, Quote, I spoke with His Majesty King Abdullah of Jordan today. We discussed the ongoing situation in the Middle East and the importance of ensuring humanitarian aid reaches civilians and our shared goal of promoting peace and security in the region. Despite Israel's genocide on Gaza being carried out in arguably the most asymmetric war in human history, the Prime Minister can spare no flowery words about the resilience of the Palestinian people. The second reason why young people have become increasingly pro-Palestinian cannot be overstated, and that is access to information. That interview, the one with the EU Foreign Secretary, that aired on Al Jazeera Arabic, and yet, Within minutes, it was posted on all social media channels, subtitled into every language imaginable and accessible to people all over the world, with commentary from content creators that young people trust much more than CNN, and rightfully so. Young people can scroll through their social media feeds and see the destruction of Gaza firsthand and the crimes being committed by Israel as it attempts to make the entirety of Gaza uninhabitable. In past wars, when Israel said it was being precise, media blackouts and the lack of visual evidence allowed Israel to cast doubt over any Palestinian claims as to the grotesque war crimes being committed. But there is no longer any room for doubt, and this generation can see it. The last reason why young people are increasingly becoming sympathetic to the Palestinians comes down to something the Zionists never saw coming. 
the Palestinian diaspora. If there is one word that could summarize the Zionist attitude toward Palestinians, it would be contempt. And that contempt blinded the Zionists who expelled 750,000 Palestinians in 1948 from envisioning that the grandchildren of those refugees would continue to hold their homes in Palestine's villages and towns close to their heart. And they certainly never imagined that the grandchildren of those refugees would develop the necessary native fluency and eloquence of their adopted languages that would enable them to spread the story of what continues to befall the Palestinians all over the world. By scattering Palestinians to the four corners of the earth, Zionists ensured that word of the ongoing Nakba would find itself on the streets, in the classrooms, in city council chambers, and in university lecture halls in every city on earth. It has taken 75 years, but the tide is finally turning and truth is beginning to prevail.